The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. I don't know about you, but is it, is it good to know that his word is unfailing? His promise is unshaking, unshaken, right? But if you've been with us this last three weeks, you know that we're talking about and in a series called In God We What? In God We Trust. And we're talking about the certainty of God versus the uncertainty of our own selves or, or this world. And as I talk about uncertainty, I'll just say it this way. It's over. <laughs> you know what I'm referring to, right? Okay. The presidential election is over, and should we just do all this right now? Just take a collective sigh of relief. Ready? Oh, the debates, the campaigning, that was good actually. The rhetoric, the political rights, all over. And in January, we're going to inaugurate the president-elect of our country. So now what? The U.S. is still the most powerful country, isn't it? Militarily, economically technologically, right? But how certain are you of its leaders? How certain are you of this world? If you're like me, there's certainly uncertainty with the riots and the division and the hatred. This world seems like it's going you know where in a handbasket. When I was in parochial school days, we would do this to say the word. My 10-year-old boys I coach say, H-E, double hockey sticks, ha, ha, ha. Some of you may feel like me, and you're discouraged by the events that are happening, by the way the campaigning and all that has run, and the leaders, we're really, as a country, imitating that, right? We're suffering the effects of that, and we're concerned about the future of America. So what do we do with all that uncertainty? What do you do with your discouragement? Do you just complain? Do you rant? Do you rave to your family? Do you pout? Do you say, I wish it were like the old what? The old days. Well, what were those old days? I mean, do we let anxiety and fear take hold of us? Those are all options. But if you've been with us these last uh, couple weeks, in fact, last week you heard Pastor RJ say, when there is uncertainty, what it does is it exposes what we put our trust to, doesn't it? When we have uncertainty, it can expose where we put our trust. That's why we continually remind ourselves. That's why we come to worship. No, in God we what? In God we trust. And so as I was thinking about this, as we were, Pastor Joel, myself, R.J. Paul, we were all uh, thinking about what's the series that we should, because we knew it was coming in November. Well, we say, in God we trust, and then all of a sudden my mind went right to the, the currency of our country. In God we trust. you ever pay, pay attention to those words that are, it's in your wallet? Of course, with six kids, there's really nothing in my wallet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, did you ever think about um, when that was put on American money? Did it start right away? No. Actually, it was very recently. 1950, yeah, 1956. President Dwight D. Eisenhower says this is going to be the official motto of our country, in God we trust. Now, in coins, 
It's been in our U.S. currency with coins since the Civil War times. Civil War, uh, in fact, I did a little investigating. The Historical Association of the United States Treasury said this. It was included on coins during the Civil War because religious sentiment reached a peak in America. Huh. Civil brother against brother. What do we have in our country right now? And I think, I wonder, is another religious sentiment peak upon us again? So in preparing for this message, I thought, hey, can we take a little pulse? What's the spiritual climate? How true is it that in God we trust in this present moment in history? So I looked at the Pew Research Center, and it said this. America's faith in God, this was two years ago, America's faith in God may be eroding. The article said, to be sure, the vast majority of Americans still believe in God. But there are strong signs that many, and here is the key word, many are less certain about this belief than in years past. I want you to take a look at the statistic. When asked if they believe in God or a universal spirit, 89% of U.S. adults said yes, but that's down from 92% just seven years earlier. One in 10 now believe and report that they don't believe in God. They went on to say, Perhaps the most striking divide and the the driving force behind the overall drop in belief is generational. As younger Americans enter adulthood, they said they're far less likely to be sure about God's, and that's the key word too, less certain or less sure about God's existence than their elders. And so the statistic is 70% of those ages 65 and older express an absolute certainty that there's a God but only 51%, 51% adults under 30 feel the same way. That's a sad trend in America, isn't it? And it's true because what I want you to do is look down your row. Is it filled? Or do you see empty spaces? If you sat here, and by the way, when you ever see Pastor Tony sitting, what do you think comes to mind? He heard his doing what? Okay, you're right my leg's swollen, okay? So I'm sitting and I hope, hope, hope you don't mind. But if you were in my spot and you looked around and you could see the empty rows, it would sadden you. But wait, we are in the perfect opportunity to do something about it because our vision statement says that we bring Christ to who? People. And we have that opportunity. People who don't know Christ can be in relationship with us And praise God, maybe they'll come with us to worship. Maybe they won't, but at least God's word will have been impacted in their life. Amen? Can we do that as a congregation? Do we have that opportunity? Yes, we. Oh, that was very, very unenthusiastic. (laughs) Can we do that with God's help as a congregation? Yes. Yes, we can. I like it. As we meet every week in worship, as the word of God is preached and as is taught, we have this hope that we have this certainty uh, of what is certain, not what is certain, but who is certain. God is certain. In him and him alone do we trust. Is my health certain? No. I'm going to be a grumpy old man when I can't play soccer anymore, and my family's got to deal with that. Is our bank account certain? Is this U.S. economy certain? Is this government certain? No, but who's certain? God. 
And the Lord knew that we would have this tendency in uncertain times, that we would be anxious, that we would have fear, that we would be not trusting. And so he didn't want us to be totally in the dark, and he provided us with the word of God that makes promises to us. Candidates, they make promises, don't they? And we're going to see how many of them come to fruition. But what is a promise? If you look on the screens, it's a promise, it's a declaration that something will or will not be done or given by someone. Right? And it's, a, it's an assurance, right, in which we expect something to be based, a promise. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I very rarely say I promise. Number one, the Bible says, let your yes be what? And your no be? Number two, who am I to control any circumstances that when I say I promise, I'm going to be 100% sure that happens? Very rarely. I promise my wife I'm going to stay faithful. I promise my kids, you know, I'm going to take care of them. But other than that, man, who does that? Who alone can control circumstances so that the outcome is actually going to happen? Who can do that? God himself can do it with 100% surety. So we're going to look at promises today. If you look at my outline, you know the first one is going to be found in 2 Peter chapter 3. So I want you to open up your Bibles with me. Page 1896 in the Bibles we provide. So go to 2 Peter chapter 3. And it's my hope as we go through this message that um, the word of God is going to calm our anxiousness. That in the midst of uncertainty in this world, God's word can do that, can't it? So let it fill your mind and your heart today. That's my prayer. Promise number one, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Are you there? Are you there? But the day of the Lord will, what? Will come. That's a promise, right? And it's going to come like a what? The heavens will, What? With a roar, they're going to disappear. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I'm going to repeat that. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. As Christians... We actually bring forth the day of the Lord, don't we? We speed its coming by bringing Christ to who? To people. That's our vision statement. That will bring, then it goes on, this will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. Global warming? Well, yes, that day for sure. God gives us many details about the end of the world. That it's going to come like a thief. The Bible says, Jesus says, no one knows, right? That day or hour, not even angels in heaven or me. Only God, my Father, Jesus says. We learn that the earth and the heavens are going to be destroyed. That means habitation on this planet will not go on indefinitely. Now, this sounds like, oh, gee, I came to church today. I'm hearing doom and gloom and fatalistic stuff. Well, switch that around for just a minute. In God's graciousness, he brings these promises to us to say, this is what's going to happen. I want, to, I want you guys to know that this is, this is my promise with 100% certainty. 
And he wants us to calm our anxious hearts. Promise number two is found in verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a what? A new earth, the home of what? New heavens and new earth is going to be created. Now, Peter, it's just not coming from Peter's own mind about this. You know, yeah, God is allowing Peter to write this letter, but he's got some scriptures too. He knows what the prophets have said. What prophets? Prophets 700 years earlier. In the 6th century B.C., Isaiah writes in Isaiah 65, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I don't know about you, but I know about me that I am glad God gives us a glimpse of what's going to happen. In in an uncertain world, we have the certainty of God's promise that how should we live our life as Christians? Looking forward to the day, rejoicing in what's going to happen. And did you catch what I have highlighted up on the screens? The former things will not be remembered. What does that mean? That this whole government stuff and election stuff, that's not going to be remembered. That the financial things in our life, the struggles we have with our health, hello, knee, right? No more physical stuff, all the relationships and the, the, the emotions and the breaking of promises, all of those are going to fade out. Is that good news? Amen and hallelujah. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived the marvelous things that God has prepared for us. Is that good news? I can't wait. I can't wait. Promise number three. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name endure and the descendants with you. They will endure eternal existence. We're talking about eternity, folks. We're talking about this earth is going to end, but a new one is going to be created where we get to dwell and live with God. That's what we look forward to. That's what we rejoice about. Those are the promises that are true and certain. Last promise as we close today, Hebrews. Go back to chapter 6 of Hebrews. It's found in page on page 1868. And I chose this passage uh, because as we were preparing, I love the title uh, that it has above verse 13. Um, if you get there um, in Hebrews chapter 6, The title above verse 13, what does it say? Say it one more time. All right, so let's hear what that is. Verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. I look at the writer of Hebrews and said, did Abraham wait patiently? And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised, a -a one-of-a-kind promise that God gave to Abraham, and he fulfilled it. Verse 16, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. You remember I said earlier about a promise that it can only be trusted, and if it's made by someone who can can guarantee keeping it, God is the only one. To do that. And he made his promise sure and certain. See, for us, we have to raise our right hand and put our left hand on what? The Bible and say, Do you solemnly what? 
Yeah, because our word sometimes isn't 100% trustworthy. So we take our oath. But when God is swearing on an oath, he said essentially, you know what? My word is perfect and reliable, but now I am going to swear by it. It makes it doubly dependable. I swear on my own name. I promise on my own name. I give my word. It's permanently done. It's the truth. Bank on it. God promises that to Abraham. What does he say? That his descendants will be like the sands on the what? Seashore and as numerous as the what? Stars in the sky. And through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. And through Abraham, a descendant, Jesus, a descendant of Abraham comes. And you have faith in him? You're what? You're blessed. Verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope. As an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to have your eyes scan verse 17 and verse 18 to two phrases. The unchanging nature of his purpose. You see it? And it is impossible for God to lie. Now in uncertain times, isn't it great to know that you have a God, that I have a God that's unchanging? That he's 100% honest. He doesn't lie. The Bible says these things repeatedly. In the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not what? God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should what? Change his mind. That's comforting to me. Jesus, the, 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 Hebrew, or the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the what? The same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Is that great news? That he's constant, that he's steady, that he's always faithful in uncertain times. And knowing this, knowing his constancy, his unchangingness, that brings comfort. But then, if you're like me, I'm like this. Well, God, if your will is determined and you know, you know what's going to happen from beginning to end, why should I even pray? Why should I pray for this person to be elected or that person to be elected? Why should I pray for my, my need to be healed or all these? Why? If your will is determined, why do we pray? you ever thought about that? Here's the question up on the screen. Could God be unchanging and yet still be authentically open to answer our prayers? Is there any flexibility or modification in God's minds and plans? Can we change God's mind when we pray? Those are tough questions, and I think I'm just probably going to leave now and have you... No, what is Faith Lutheran Church all about? We let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? We bring to bear the truth of God while we saw the truth that he is God, not man. He doesn't change his mind. What about the Scripture passages that talk about him changing his mind? Some like this, Genesis 18, where, where Abraham is pleading and praying on behalf of the, the, the people of Sodom. He says then, that's he, Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10, that's righteous people, what if only 10 can be found there? The Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Here God is portrayed as really and authentically, sincerely open to change his mind. But what do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? It was what? 
It was destroyed. Four people saved. So, but yet we see that God is willing to change his mind. But how many people could he find? He couldn't find what? Ten righteous people. So it's destroyed. Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf incident. Moses is, is praying, intercessing for his people, the nation of Israel. He begs for God's mercy. And the Bible says the Lord what? Relented from the disaster he had spoken of and bringing about on his people. Joel chapter 2 paints a picture of destruction. Awful day of the Lord is going to happen to Judah. But then by the sincere pleas of people asking for forgiveness, God says in, in the book of Joel, who knows whether he will not turn and what? Relent and leave behind a blessing. Through the prophet Isaiah, the, the, the Bible says, uh, God tells King Hezekiah, you are going to die. You will not recover. And then Hezekiah prays and Isaiah gives this message, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your what? Your tears. And I will heal you. I will what? Add 15 years to your life. The Old Testament and the New Testament even confirms the book of James and the RSV version. I want you to see it on the screens about the power of prayer. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth its fruit. When we read scripture passages about God's constant and unchangingness, but then we read these, these uh, Bible passages where he changes his mind, what are we to do with that? How can we understand who God is? Sometimes it's only by way of using metaphors in the Bible. Metaphors like God is a rock and he is a fortress. Is God really a rock or a fortress? No. God is not a man that he should change his mind. Does God have a mind? I mean, I, you know, we use metaphors like Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd, right? I am the vine. You are the branches. In order to understand this kind of, 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 of tension that we have in the scriptures, the only way our, our finite minds can handle it, as opposed to in God's infinite Intellect is by using metaphor. And so metaphorical language has a no and a yes to it. It has a no and a yes. There's something that is and there's something that is not. And so when we read scripture, it's, it's, it's key for us to understand what's the no of what we're talking about? What's the yes of it? So when I give you passages like Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, you know, God is, is showing us his nature, but they're complementary. So it's for us to understand it. So first, when we read passages about his constancy, the, the, the metaphor for it is, is about his unchangeable nature. So when he talks to Abraham, when he talks to Hezekiah, when he talks to King David, he's saying, I am an unchanging God. My promise is an everlasting covenant with you. I'm never going to go back on that. There's no one or nothing that can separate me. When he talks that way, God's people say, this is the God we know. He is not going to change. His purpose for me is constant. He's a God and not a man. That's the no of the metaphor. But then there's a yes of it. So we can come to him and say, you know what? When I pray to God, I'm not praying to some uh, a God that is an, uh, a, a deity that doesn't change, that he's unfeeling. No, God is a person. 
He came down through the person of Jesus so we understand who he is. He wants a relationship with us in his creation. So when we pray, his love compels him, himself, to change, to be responsive to us. Does God, must God punish people who don't believe? Yeah, that's his nature. Does he want to do that? No. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants everyone to know the truth. So we're in this paradox, right? Where we have this tension of the scripture that God is both constant, but he's also flexible. I mean, that's, that's good news for us both in both ways, that we have a constant God, but yet he listens to us depending on our circumstances. We call it the circumstantial will, circumstantial will of God. That he's not only high and mighty and supreme, but he comes down to us to listen. That he's at the graveside with people weeping, Jesus is, with Lazarus. That he's willing to heal. And so what do we do, what do, we do as Christians? All we can do is pray. As Christians, we pray. Pray to God with all boldness. Lord, this is my need, and I'm asking you with boldness. Lord, I'm asking on behalf of a friend because their burdens are our burdens, and we share it. That's why we invite people to come up every time after the service. Let us pray for you and with you because we're going to pray in boldness, and we know that prayer can change God's mind, and he's always, always going to be constant, and then it's always this way. God, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Amen? In God we what? In God we trust. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for just some moments. I'm going to ask you some questions. I don't want you to quiet your hearts for just a moment. I want you to respond in your hearts and minds silently as I ask these questions. Are you a child of God? Are you baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Do you believe Jesus is your Savior? If you say, yes, Jesus, you're my Savior, then you know something about yourself, that you're a sinner and you sin against God and each other and to deserve an eternity separated from God in hell. Are you a sinner? Do you fall short of his standards? Do you know that you don't love God with your whole heart and mind and body and strength? Do you agree that you don't trust him in all situations? You see, all these statements are true of me too. Yet because we have faith in Jesus, we're covered by his promises. Promises like, as far as the east is from the west so far, have you removed my sin from me, God. Promises like, God, you made Jesus to be no sin, to be sin, so that I wouldn't be sin in front of you, that I'd be, have your righteousness. You've made promises like, while we were still sinners, you died for us. You made promises like, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us, and you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are a promise maker, God, and you are 100% certain that you forgive, that you love, and that our sins are truly forgiven.